This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there. Welcome to you. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers and joining me as always is Leon Logan-Nathan, my co-host. How are you, mate? I'm very well, mate. How are you? Very good. Can't complain. Loving the beautiful weather. Had a nice little storm roll in for about two and a half minutes today. And uh, yeah, who could complain in beautiful Darwin? It does. Uh, the temperature drops, uh, you know, about 10 degrees when that storm comes in. You know? I was sitting here yesterday doing some work and it felt like about 45 degrees. <laughs> and then literally I heard a rumble, rumble, no storm or anything. But the temperature just plummeted and it was very comfortable. Today it was similar, but it, uh, there was a little bit of rain just to tease me. Right, right. Well, mate, um, we've got one of our regulars uh, back on the podcast again. And um, the reason why we've got her back is uh, a due to court. We were, was mandated by the court? No, no. Uh, we, I, uh, I came across a, an email from GetUp. Um, now, I've got to tell you, I like get up when they're defending <laughs> when they're, when they're defending the ABC. I have to tell you, yeah, that's, yeah. that's my that, that's my favourite uh, thing that get up does. But then they seem to go off and do these other things. Now, mm. I kind of think that people should, you know, uh, whatever they're up to, they should come with clean hands and say, right, mm. well, I think this is wrong for these reasons. Yeah, but they certainly shouldn't be making things up, and they certainly shouldn't be inciting things um, when there doesn't appear to be evidence to back it up. So, uh, get up, uh, sent a, a broadcast email to all and sundry uh, regarding Origin Energy and the fracking in the Northern mm. Territory. Oh yes. Now, as you know. Scott Morrison in the budget recently said that uh, fracking is going to be one of the big ticket items. It's going to drag this uh, entire economy out of the abyss. Mm. Uh, and uh, the government was going to support that as much as they can. Um, now, that sort of spurred Get Up into action. And they sent an email out that said uh, Origin Energy just started fracking in the Northern Territory. Together with the billion-dollar bailout Scott Morrison promised oil and gas corporations in this week's federal budget, it's a climate bomb equal to 22 times Australia's annual carbon pollution. The lure of government-funded subsidies has sent frackers into overdrive and Origin is desperate to be the first to extract oil and gas in the Territory. Origin steamrolling ahead with their fracking as a callous act. Mm. Under recently, until recently, their operations have been shut down because remote Aboriginal communities and traditional owners were calling for a halt due to concerns about the risk of spreading COVID into their communities. Even worse, the dirty energy giant refuses to store their toxic waste water safely and as the NT faces what is predicted to be the largest wet season in years, monsoons could soon see Origin's dangerous chemicals flooding across the country, <laughs> poisoning the water that remote communities rely on. 
For years, traditional owners have been fighting origin because they know how dangerous fracking is to water, culture and country, and they're calling for your support. Campaigning with these frontline communities is a huge long-term commitment. That's why today we are asking people like you to make a regular weekly contribution to establish a solidarity, solidarity fund to support traditional owners in their fight against fracking. <clears throat> if enough of us come together and chip in what we can afford on a regular ongoing basis, we can do the long-term work that is necessary to support traditional owners and sustain ongoing pressure against origin. Can you join the Get Up crew by making a weekly contribution to the Solidarity Fund to support the fight to stop origins fracking from destroying climate and country? So if you've lived in anywhere from the year 2016, or probably even predating that, but certainly from 2016 uh, and beyond, uh, there's two words that we hear all day, every day, and that is fake news. And you of all people have taught me that you can't just believe what you read on face value, do your research, look into you know, a lot more detail when it comes to things like that. I personally, I don't know that deeply about this issue. I know that we have our guest coming on who does and she helps to educate us on the whole topic. But even I listening to that know that there's so much horseshit in most of that, it's not funny. And why do you say that, Pete? How do you, how do you know there's so much horseshit in that? I just want to know. When I hear expressions such as the monsoons are going to be so big it's going to wash chemicals all over the country, that has got sensationalist written all over it. I don't think it, it wouldn't even be possible. I mean, people are envious of the rain we get up here. It's been talked about for years to try and create, uh, you know, tunnels and so forth and pipes to send it down south. What a load of rubbish that suddenly chemicals from far north, Northern Territory are going to suddenly, essentially they're saying the whole country is in danger. So that, that's one of those things. But I also look at it and think to myself, and, and again, I'm, I'm just basing this on common sense, well, what have GetUp done for traditional owners in the Northern Territory before this article? And, and what, okay, so if I give five bucks and you give five bucks and another hundred people give five bucks, how's that going to suddenly rectify the situation? It, it just uh, doesn't seem plausible. Well, I think what they do is they use the money to then go and, you know, run campaigns like, like you know, when the, the time that they tried to get rid of Peter Dutton, which mm. I must say I was I did a good job. <laughs> so I was quite in support of that one. But, uh, um, but yeah, so I guess they use the money to, to run campaigns and they've become quite clever at this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I feel a little bit disappointed because if this is true, then, you know, provide the science, show us exactly why you think this is the mm. case. So on that note, I thought it would be good for us to um, get Stephanie Stonia from Origin Energy back on the podcast. Yep. And some people would say, well, you know, why are you asking the, the person that is potentially doing all the polluting to explain the situation? Well, <laughs> I think... Not you so, personally, yeah, Steph. <laughs> well, exactly. So I think it's, it's good to, you know, get, you know, um, Origin side of the story and interrogate it as, as much as we can based mm. on our own common sense and understanding and see where it goes. And 
by all means, I'd be happy to have someone from, uh, you know, preferably not get up, but if it is get up, somebody that's got some sort of scientific sort of backing to what they're saying mm. uh, to give us their version because, you know, ordinary people like you and me want the best for the territory. Uh, you know, we're, we're not about to go and try and pollute the hell out of the place, you know, for the benefit of our children or, mm. or, or, or traditional owners for that matter. So let's, uh, let's drill down. Let's have a conversation with Steph and see if we can get to the bottom of some of this stuff. Welcome mm. back to the podcast, Stephanie Stonia. Thanks, guys. It's lovely to see you again and lovely to join you for another conversation. Yes, well, as I said to you earlier today, Steph, you're, um, every time you come on the podcast, our ratings go through the roof. So uh, <laughs> yeah. people are clearly, I don't know who's listening to this, maybe it is Get Up and their crew, but uh, whatever it is, uh, your last, uh, your, the last time you were on this podcast, I think we had almost 400 downloads of the podcast, which is amazing. Mm. That's great. And, and it's clearly not us that they're downloading, so thank you. <laughs> hey, Thanks. Steph. Yeah? How hard was that to listen to? Um, yeah, it's pretty frustrating. So I was thinking about this earlier today because I think on the first podcast we did together, that was number 118, I think, um, one of your questions <laughs> to me, Pete, was um, – Steph, what are some of the things that really get your goat? Mm. <laughs> and I think I replied to you at the time that I really try not to let things frustrate me too much. I try to properly understand where people are coming from and, and help unpack it a little bit and then try and address what their concerns and issues are. But this latest stunt just really goes above and beyond, um, you know, having a balanced discussion about what is is and isn't happening and every single claim that Leon just gratefully shared with us is a mistruth. Um, so it would be great to walk through each of those individually mm. um, and share some of our industry's views on those claims and hopefully once we get to um, put this podcast up, we can share it more broadly so that mainstream Australians who get up are clearly targeting here and don't understand the complexities of the native title landscape in the Northern Territory, um, nor have they lived through the inquiry like we have, um, that this campaign, one, is hugely disrespectful to the standing of the actual native title holders um, and, you know, we, we're hearing from them how offended they are by these claims um, and, of course, for other Aboriginal people to be speaking for their country. Um, so hopefully more people uh, uh, from mainstream Australia, particularly Victoria, New South and Queensland, where they target the population to raise these funds, um, will also uh, learn a little bit more and maybe, um, as you said before, think twice about whether this is a legitimate um, request for support and is done with uh, honesty and integrity because my position is that it is not. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the unpacking this whole thing, Steph, can you, for the benefit of uh, everyone, just uh, run through what fracking is again? Yeah, sure. So, um, fracture stimulation, it's called hydraulic fracture stimulation is the correct technical term, um, and it's um, often called fracking, um, is the process by which once we've drilled a well, 
um, and we uh, have um, have connection with a hydrocarbon bearing formation. In some instances, not all instances, you will fracture stimulate that well. Um, and all the the job is to engineer or increase the pathways for um, hydrocarbons to then flow through the well up to surface. Um, so we've been fracking in the Northern Territory for over 40 years. Um, so the Marini field outside of Alice Springs, um, which uh, they have over 30% of their wells have been fracture stimulated. But basically you're sending um, water down into the formation at high pressures to um, fracture, not crack, fracture, create little hairline fractures in the formation, which create, as I said, a pathway for um, maximum amount of gas to flow to surface. So I think the way we described this last time was if you imagine a, um, a car window with tinting on it and a rock hits your window, your, your window doesn't all fall and, smash and smash and fall apart. You actually just get these little hairline fractures that go in different directions um, and they create, you know, they're tiny little hairline fractures. That's kind of what we're doing in the formation is just very fine fractures um, and then we have propen in that fluid which actually helps prop those fracks uh, fractures uh, open. So if we don't keep them prop propped open, um, the pressure in the, in the formation that we're at at the moment is around, you know, 10,000 PSI, I guess. So if you don't actually have anything to prop it open, it will naturally just close up again very quickly under the natural pressure that it's under. Um, and there are some chemicals that are used in that process, um, which are all assessed by the regulator um, and their concentration um, is well within the limits that are acceptable for chemical usage. Um, and they're things like, I think we said before, um, we use gua, so that kind of makes the fluid a bit more gooey, you know, like that um, slime <laughs> when you were a kid, you used to play with slime. <laughs> so it turns the water into a more uh, viscous fluid, which means that the the propent, the sand, can be nicely and evenly suspended in the in the water. Um, and then the things like acetic acid, which we use to break down the goo um, so that we can flow the water back up to surface. And as I mentioned before, acetic acid is... Um, is in your vinegar mm. uh, at home in a concentration of five percent, and in our in our in a frac fluid, we might have it at less than half a percent. So chemicals is a big one that I think um, is very well, uh, very much misunderstood. And uh, as I said before, it's always very important to understand the concentrations as to if there's any any potential of harm when it comes to chemicals. Mm. And so with all of that, um, the budget was handed down a couple of weeks ago. What did Scott Morrison say uh, in the budget in relation to fracking? Um, I didn't listen to his uh, budget delivery uh, or nor... Uh uh, the treasurers, um, but I do understand they are, are keenly behind a gas-led um, recovery from COVID and they have um, indicated strong support to uh, um, help assess and um, potentially um, help accelerate um, production from five basins and one of them is the Beedaloo. 
And, and, and how are they helping to accelerate that? Well, they're not helping Origin specifically. Uh, we mm. have not had one uh, cent um, uh, received from the government, nor have we asked for it. Every dollar that Origin has spent on its campaign in the Northern Territory has been fully funded by its shareholders. Um, but I think what you what you what what you would see from the federal government is a desire to invest in infrastructure that is of benefit to multiple industries, including the gas industry. So, for example, um, road infrastructure. So. Um, increasing or improving the quality of the Carpentaria Highway um, adds benefits for pastoralists, um, uh, particularly those that are running um, cattle properties, um, and it also has a benefit for the industry. Um, so that would be an example of improvements to infrastructure that um, help facilitate um, these projects potentially getting off the ground in a success case as well as being of benefit to uh, other industries and other community members. Pipelines would be another example. But from Origin's perspective, we've not received one um, one dollar from either the federal government or the territory government. In fact, quite the opposite. <laughs> we actually have to fund uh, a lot of the work of the inquiry, for example. So you'll remember the Justice Pepper said the industry must fund the implementation of all the recommendations. So we're actually, not only are we funding um, the work required to execute um, our safe operations in the Beedaloo, we're also funding the implementation of the recommendations. Mm. So the billion-dollar bailout that they refer to in the email is not really a bailout, is it? It's no, that's right. And and, I, and I'm not aware. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure what they even mean. And they talk about a lure of government sun, um, subsidies has you know sent the frackers into overdrive, and it's just again, it's just not true. Um, and again, I repeat, we have not. Uh, received one dollar of funding from anyone other than our shareholders to safely complete our work. So what do they mean when they say it's a climate bomb equal to 22 times Australia's annual carbon pollution? Yeah, this is so... Go to the reference note there, Leona. Um, what's the reference for that statement? It says, it says NT's fracking emissions could cost more than $4 billion a year to offset by... 2030 report finds ABC News 31 October 2018. So they're referencing a media story, <laughs> not a scientific uh, paper or report. Um, now, this is very, very important. This is a common tactic of activists um, when they want to talk about negative impacts, they take the highest possible number that they could possibly come up with. Um, and when, when we talk about the positive impacts, such as jobs, they like to take the lowest possible number. <laughs> um, and this happened many, many times during the inquiry. Um, and Justice Pepper actually pulled a number of these groups up on using this approach. And she said that those numbers are clearly unreliable and are over-optimistic. Um, and that the Australia Institute estimates of greenhouse gas emissions are, in the panel's view, highly inflated. Um, so basically what they're doing is taking the... You, you, you'll recall discussions and conversations around what is the OGIP 
um, number. So OGYP is the original gas in place uh, in those rocks. Um, and we've talked before, you know, of hundreds of TCF. And we've also shared before that you likely will only recover around 10% of um, of an OGIP number. So for our Amundi discovery, we declared to the Stock Exchange a TCF of about 60, but the actual recoverable amount was 6.6 TCF. Um, so what they have done is gone, what's the total amount of gas in the rocks, in the basin, and if you extracted all of that at the same time, hmm. um, this is your climate bomb. So hmm. as as uh, Pete said, it's just an, an overinflated, exaggerated, sensationalised um, statement to make um, to just frighten people <laughs> into mm. believing that there's something wrong. The other thing that their studies, uh, the Australia Institute doesn't uh, contemplate or consider is uh, recognising the contribution that gas makes in, when it is then used to uh, displace coal. Um, <laughs> so remember, we talked in America uh, about uh, in America the uh, increase in national uh, natural gas usage um, has come with a sixteen percent reduction in their carbon emissions. Um, so yeah, there, there's no there's nothing that we can see in the Australia Institute calculations that actually contemplate that usage, whereby you actually get an emission reduction. Mm. Um, yeah. So um, fact or fiction, the frackers are in overdrive. <laughs> what the hell does um, that even mean? Yeah, well, as you know, we've shared before, our commitment with respect to the permits issued to us by the Northern Territory Government is for nine exploration wells uh, over a five-year period um, that We've had there was a pause for a period of time, obviously, while there was the moratorium um, and the inquiry. And I don't know that anyone could really describe the pace of our work as being gone into overdrive because <laughs> we've only done um, five wells in uh, six years. Um, and Origins operated this year, uh, which is one well at our Kayala 117 well. Um, Santos were able to go back and actually um, do some work on their already pre-existing well um, called um, uh, on Tanamburini Station. And most recently in the news, Empire Energy have drilled a vertical well in, uh, in their permit acreage. So... Uh, I, it doesn't qualify to me as us going into overdrive, but um, I don't know of any other activity that's been happening in the NT. Mm. And uh, the you mentioned the traditional owners. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you've obviously got a relationship with the Aboriginal communities where you are doing the exploration. Um, and to a community, they are all supportive. Is that right? Yeah, so this is really... This is this is a big part of the conversation. So if you're if you're not familiar with this landscape, which is very complex, um, and what you see is um, headlines or images of Aboriginal people saying, "I'm a traditional owner and I don't want fracking on my country," um, you you can be forgiven for not understanding um, that that is not someone who 
may be able to speak culturally and legally for where we're actually working. So what I mean by that is we are in the incredibly fortunate position where we have, um, there are native title determinations right across our permits. So there are 10 native title determinations made by the federal court um, and um, they are very clearly um, identify who are the primary estate groups and the land council whose whose job it is to um, do the anthropological work and um, everything that is necessary to um, successfully uh, make a claim which does result in a determination is is exhaustive and extensive um, so we are, are super lucky in that regard because it is very clear and uh, and the federal court has determined that. Um, so we feel very comfortable with the work of the Land Council and feel very comfortable with the work um, that we have also done in connection and uh, partnership with the Land Council and Native Title Holders. So as far as I have been able to observe, those people that are um, being um, supported by these organisations that are professional activists are not our native title holders. They are traditional owners for, for country somewhere. Now, remember we said every Aboriginal person is a traditional owner for country somewhere. They are, but it doesn't make them a native title holder for a particular area. And that's the distinction that is really hard, I think, to for people to get um, familiar with very quickly and have confidence in that. Um, and the other thing that I think we need to be mindful of is that um, the native title determinations are, are, are required to follow the paternal line. So, for example, if um, an Aboriginal person in the Territory's mother was from that country, they may self-identify as being a traditional owner for that area, but they doesn't necessarily mean they have the status of native title because the determinations are uh, through the paternal lineage. So there's so many layers of complexity here and the, the Land Council is incredibly experienced in working through uh, these uh, discussions with um, traditional owners and native title holders. And, you know, you really have to ask yourself if these types of um, campaigns to have Aboriginal people, which activists know full well are not from the area where Origin is working, speaking up against the campaign to help them raise money, you know, it's, it doesn't sound very honourable um, uh, thing to be doing. It's a bit like, it's a bit like if Pete and I were neighbours <laughs> and and uh, how did I get drawn into this all of a sudden? And uh, and someone was uh, you know I gave somebody permission to dig up my backyard, and Pete's out there saying I don't give permission for that to happen. <laughs> is, is that what we're talking about here? <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, when I think this came out about the same time we actually had our native title holders on site while we were fracking. So 
the people who, um, the traditional owners who are supporting this activity and are allowing us to be on their country to do this work safely are intimately involved in the decision-making process about where wells can and can't go. So, um, they do the sacred site clearance surveys and they say, well, you know what, guys, you can go here, you can put a well pad, you know, 200 metres by 200 metres here, but you can't put it over there 10 kilometres away. So they actually help us identify and make sure we're nowhere near any sites of significance. Mm. And then, of course, there's um, making sure that we're, they're comfortable, that we're protecting water and environment and all those things, which is great. And the Land Council is there to assist traditional owners in making informed decisions about that. Um, yeah, so... Um, they, our native title holders, were really happy and comfortable and enjoying being on site at the same time that um, traditional owners from neighbouring areas um, were um, being presented as the as the rightful people to speak for we, where we mm. are. So it's really, really quite challenging. And our native title holders are really distressed and disturbed and getting quite angry about this um, because it's, as we said, disrespecting their traditional law um, and it's also disrespecting their standing as the the rightful native title holders. So why are these people given a voice, Steph? You know, like why are we not hearing from, from the traditional owners on, which, on, on whose land you're actually doing this work? Well, some some of our traditional owners actually have um, spoken publicly and they've done videos and you can go to our social media platforms and our website and you can hear them speaking for themselves about origin and about um, the activity and uh, about their support for the project. Um, and um, others are very, well, to be quite frank, scared and nervous mm. because they, when they have stood up before and, and tried to have their voices heard to help us all understand this very complex space, um, they have been threatened and bullied and abused um, by groups that are well known to us in the Northern Territory. Um, so they they become quite frightened to speak out because of the behaviour that then gets extended to them. Um, so it's really a very, it's it's real bullying Ooh. and nasty, yes. mm. nasty stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, I'd encourage listeners to maybe get onto the Origin um, Beetaloo Exploration website and maybe when we when we post this podcast I can put those links up um, mm. because then you can hear from families themselves uh, about what they're doing what what sort of uh, what sort of groups or characters would be bullying these traditional owners you don't have to mention names but who would have an interest in doing that uh, people that actually just will go to any lengths to um, pursue their belief that um, resource extractive activities need to be stopped. Okay. Of any kind. So they're generally associated with a colour, are they? <laughs> Pete, you're being very politically correct. All right. Um, so they also talk about water safety and toxicity. Mm. and the storage of the same. What's, uh, what's your position on that? Yeah, so here we're talking about the statement around 
even worse, the dirty energy giant refuses to store their toxic, toxic waste water safely. Mm. Again, this is an absolute blatant lie. Mm. Um, the inquiry uh, made a recommendation that um, operators need to have enclosed ponds, enclosed storage, enclosed tanks. It's, they're all interchangeable, those terms, mm. um, for managing uh, flowback fluid or wastewater from from the well. So remember, we put a whole lot of water down the well, and then we need to flow that back mm. to surface. Um, now, uh, we posted a picture on our social media platforms, so Facebook and Twitter and um, Instagram, and sh and showed people a picture of the web of our well site, a bit like you're seeing behind me now, um, and they reposted our photo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and said, see, look, Origin aren't having using enclosed ponds. Well, you can see quite clearly that these ponds are enclosed. Mm. Um, and the purpose of that is to make sure that um, in the event that there is a predicted rainfall of significant um, volumes that um, our there's no ingress into those into those ponds to then potentially have them overflow mm. um, so it's it's just an absolute um, lie to make that statement um, and if we weren't if we weren't complying with the regulatory requirements um, the regulators who are regularly out on site would well and truly be picking us up for that um, now, our native title holders also had the opportunity to go and inspect all of that equipment while they were on site, and they are satisfied that Origin does actually have the correct storage uh, for uh, wastewater management as required by the NT inquiry and the regulations. Um, now, as for the chemicals flooding across the country and poisoning <laughs> the water, mm. um, um, all of the chemicals um, that are taken onto site for a short period of time have to be, you know, comply with all the necessary bunding and storage requirements of any hazardous material. Um, and again, that was inspected by the regulator when that activity and that infrastructure was on site a few weeks ago. All of that infrastructure and equipment, including the chemicals, has now been taken off-site uh, and is no longer there. So this idea that somehow fully protected, fully bunded um, chemical storage um, units would just, I don't know, combust, like break or something, and then I'm not sure. I can't even imagine a scenario where that would happen. It seemed um, plausible, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the only other then uh, concern would be linked back to the claim that we haven't got enclosed ponds would be if we had a rainfall event and we got lots of rain and then the pond overflowed. And again, that's not um, possible. Mm. And so the, the water that you've got in those ponds there, I can see they're all different colours. One looks like, like you could swim in it almost. It's nice and blue there. <laughs> I, I feel and it you, might be a pool actually. <laughs> so um, two two are covered. So they're two are covered, and therefore um, uh, flow back fluid or wastewater um, storage when we need 
when we need it to be covered. So that's set up. And when this image was taken, that was um, because we were doing the testing. So basically they have, the covers have three layers in them as well. Um, so a primary layer, a, a kind of, at the bottom of the ponds as well, there's like a felting, if you like, so that there can be no penetration from rocks or anything like that that could pierce the the, the liners. Um, and they have sensors, and then they have sensors in them as well, so we can get alerts, so we can see if there's any breach between all of those layers uh, with each of the ponds and the covers. Um, so we have two covered ponds. We have one open pond that is. Um, available to us to use evaporation which is um, we attempt to evaporate as much as the fluid as we can so we don't actually have to manage and take away um, such large volumes of waste. So I think you may recall in the Amunji well um, if we hadn't evaporated the flowback fluid, we would have had to have 40-odd double road trains taking that flowback fluid to a registered facility for treatment, whereas having the benefit of uh, evaporation, we only ended up having to use four uh, mm -hmm. single single road trains. So, And it's an approved and regulated um, um, uh, way to actually manage waste using evaporation. Mm. Um, and the fourth tank, Leon, in this image is the freshwater tank. So we were, that's the freshwater that we were using to actually pump down and do the fracture job in the well, fracture stimulation job in the well. Yep. Mm. So where does this water come from? It comes from the water bores um, that we've installed into um, the aquifers. So for our water extraction, we have to, again, um, make an application to the Department of Environment for what's called a water extraction licence. And the water extraction licence is only granted to you if um, the volumes are in line with what is um, able to be allocated from within the sustainable yield allocation. Um, and we have, we have set volumes on what we are uh, allowed to extract. We certainly haven't um, come close to, you know, using our, our authorised water extraction volumes. Right. And so you use that water to do the uh, hydraulic uh, fracture stimulation. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Uh, okay. And then when the water comes out, it's obviously got all the, the acetic acid and other, other stuff, the, the, the gluey stuff that you talked about. So... The water, yes, when we do the frac job, the water gets mixed with the um, chemicals that we use and the propant or the sand, yes. and then yes. it's sent down the formation. Then we flow the well back to mm -hmm. recover some of that fluid, and we can then obviously, we know exactly the composition of that fluid when it went down the well, yes. and then, of course, we can assess the composition of the fluid when it comes back up the well. Yes. Then you will be able to determine whether you can reuse uh, that water in your next fracture stimulation job, uh, if you can recycle it for something else or if it does actually have to have to go away for treatment and use. Yeah. Right. And so, like, how do you actually get rid of it once, you, once it's been used? Evaporation, you said, was one way. That evaporation just reduces the actual water volume, right. um, and then you what what's left then um, um, 
goes to, we don't have a registered facility yet, yet as such um, yet in the Northern Territory. So when we did the Amunji well, we got approval from the Environmental Protection Authority here and in Queensland and that waste was transported by trucks over to a registered facility that treats this type of uh, wastewater in um, Queensland. Um, yeah, so that's what we'll do this time. Um, but should we have exploration success and go into a development scenario, we would be expecting to set up our own treatment facility uh, here in the Northern Territory. Mm. And so what does treatment look like? What do they do to it? Do it. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure, to be right. honest, um, but obviously there would be pretty um, robust requirements around if once that water, what what needs to be done to that water to treat it, and then um, what what can be what what can it be used for um, post treatment? Um, now, again, because we're not, um, what was the word they used? Going into overdrive. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. of course we're not in overdrive yet. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not we're not. Um, thinking about how we can reuse and recycle except for our own activities. Um, but certainly in Queensland, what they do is they um, treat a lot of the water um, that's produced from the wells um, to uh, World Health Organisation standards. And in some cases, that's used for irrigation for farmers. So it completely mm. um, means that they no longer are subject to um, cycles of drought and other things because they'll constantly have access to uh, water to continue with their operations all year round. Right. Mm. Okay. Uh, so that's water done. Now what else did they say there? For, for years, traditional owners have been fighting Origin Energy because they know how <laughs> dangerous fracking is to water, culture and country. But as you said, the people that you've dealt with are perfectly happy with what's going on. They're involved in the whole process. Mm -hmm. They see what's going on. Um, they don't have any issues, and it appears to be possibly traditional owners that don't have any connection with that part of the country that uh, apparently uh, have issues that they've taken up with GetUp or the other way around. Depending <laughs> <laughs> on whose cause it suits. <laughs> um, as yeah, as I said, we're very confident in the work of the Northern Land Council. Um, we the native title determinations by the federal court are very clear, um, and our native title holders have um, and continue to support our operations. Um, and they are involved, as I said before, in decision making about where well sites can and can't go. Um, the um, with respect, the Aboriginal people um, that are in the Get Up campaigns, I suspect have been told a lot of those mistruths that we talked about um, in one of the earlier podcasts. I mean, an example is, um, do you remember the court case last week with um, um, the protester group, activist group and... Um, um, one Aboriginal gentleman who went to court for um, drilling the 
you know, the auger into the Parliament House because to see how, how politicians liked it to have someone digging holes on their country. Do you remember that? Right, right. Yeah. So um, I kind of, I have quite a lot of empathy for that young gentleman. Um, he said I was, it's something along the lines of, you know, I wasn't really concerned about this before until I was told that all my fish are going to die. Um, and there is no scientific evidence anywhere that uh, fracking has caused or resulted in Mm. the death of fishing populations i mean Mm. so so if you're not a native title holder and you actually don't have anyone doing this work on your country where else are they getting information from and it it points to organisations that are opposed to fracking. Mm. It, it sounds to me like um, this uh, wonderful media release from GetUp. Uh, I say that with sarcasm just in case anyone wasn't sure. Um, you know, it sounds to me like they're, they're trying to uh, accuse the industry, if you like, of running roughshod uh, with no rules, uh, you know, like a, a redneck sort of environment, whereas the reality is that the industry is extremely regulated and, you know, it just seems that their comments and their accusations are poles apart from reality. Yeah, that's a fair point, I think, Pete, a fair observation or summary. And as we said before, we have been safely fracking in the Northern Territory for multiple decades without any of these catastrophic events um, taking place that people are led to kind of believe. Um, And that's through good practice and it's also through the good work of the public servants who are the regulators regulating this activity. So. Those types of claims are really disrespectful and an affront to many people mm. um, who, who, as we've talked about before, understand the huge responsibility we have as operators to do the right thing um, and to make sure that we execute our work and in a way that continues to protect the environment, protect culture, protect people, whilst also... Um, being able to yield the benefits that industry brings Um, and that's jobs and revenue and all of those sorts of things. So every statement is a falsehood and a mistruth Um, and, uh, you know, point you guys and your listeners to Nick Cater's article in The Australian, I think it was the end of last week, Um, and he quotes GetUp in this article. So, Get up, say, for years tradition owners have been fighting origin and we're asking you to make a weekly contribution to establish a solidarity fund to support traditional owners in their fight against fracking. And Leon introduced this at the beginning. Um, um, Mr Cater describes this, or he says, a more despicable example of soliciting money under false pretenses is hard to imagine. Mm. Um, and, you know... People, listeners will come to their own um, conclusions, but yeah, it's it does feel very dishonest, um, um, and I believe taking advantage of well-meaning Australians <laughs> mm. 
um, to get them to fund something and get behind a campaign which is absolutely founded on mistruths and lies. Well, there's three things I'd like to I'd like to comment about that, Steph. Number one, Nick Cater is the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre. Now, yes. if that is not an institution that is well respected in the territory, I don't know what is. You know, we're not talking about someone even from the gas industry here. Mm-hmm. He's from mm-hmm. the Menzies Research Centre. Mm-hmm. The next thing I noticed in his article mm-hmm. was he quotes the well, he mentions the CSIRO, and he says. The science behind fracturing is well established. A three-year study by the CSIRO published earlier this year found fracking had no impact on air or water quality. So, I mean, now there's another institution that is up there in headlights as being gold standard, uh, you know, trustworthy that that you can take to the bank. so, so those you know, those two institutions, you know, Menzies, CSIRO, both saying you know what they're saying. Um, a guy that I respect, and I'm pretty sure Pete's not that far behind me, is um, is Jerry Wood, recently retired. Now, one thing about Jerry is that he doesn't take anybody on face value. Mm-hmm. He goes and does his own independent research. And I think he even paid for this himself, but he jumped on a plane and went to the U.S., went all over the U.S., looked at fracturing, virtually rocked up in someone's backyard and questioned <laughs> them to death, and came back saying, I don't see any problem with this. Mm-hmm. So it just, it's really very, very disheartening, I see, I feel, that an organisation like Get Up, which I feel that in some instances they do do good work, I, I am a big fan of the ABC, uh, even though I feel sometimes they get it desperately wrong. <laughs> but um, I, I do believe in a public broadcaster. I, 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 you know, I've got to put my cards down where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I'm glad that GetUp supports that. Um, but I just feel they destroy their credibility when they do this sort of stupid stuff because. People like me looking at this go, well, gosh, if they're doing that for fracking, mm-hmm. you know, have I been misled on the ABC and other things that I actually like them doing? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just think it's dumb. It's short-sighted. And I just wish that, you know, if they're going to do this, that they actually have some science behind it. If they could say the CSIRO backed them, I'd pay attention to that. Yeah, so this is really interesting, Leon, because some years ago, um, these same groups, activist groups, um, called for these studies or studies to be done um, and that industry must pay. It shouldn't be on the the taxpayer's purse. Um, And now, you know, 10 or so many years later, when industry funds the exact research that um, a people are calling for in community to be done, we, it then gets turned around as if you can't, how can anyone think that the CSIRO's research is acceptable given that it was funded by industry? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Well, you know, the CSIRO has very strict um, 
rules about how it manages its research projects and there is complete disclosure around all of the funding associated um, with yeah. that work. So, again, it's a bit like, you know, um, the activists call for the inquiry they don't get the result they want and they're not prepared to accept the umpire's decision. Mm. Um, and this is another example of that. Um, you know, that was a three-year study. <laughs> um, and and then, then for some reason, um, what they asked us to actually pay for, they now don't, they use that as a, as a, a an attempt to discredit the research. It's just extraordinary. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so. yeah, it is. Uh, it's disappointing. Um, I hope we can have a better, you know, better quality debate. I mean, gosh, you know, if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But at least yeah. don't make things up. You know? Yeah, yeah. And don't incite people who are, you know, are vulnerable people. You know, who who would believe stuff like this. Yeah, mate. Unfortunately, the last four years have been full of that. Uh, this yeah. world's now full of people doing exactly that to yeah. confuse the masses, to, to get them to vote the wrong way or the right way or whichever way they want, and that's the world we now live in. Mm. Well, thankfully well, that didn't happen here in the Territory in the last election, um, <laughs> and uh, poor old Terry, who I understand is up at around 360000 of his own money uh, that he put into the, into the election. I just think it's just crazy stuff, mm. um, and that that whole party's imploded now. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I remember we were talking on the um, oh podcast one two five. Not that anyone's counting. About the forthcoming election at the time, it was just yeah. ahead of us, and uh, we talked about the only poll that mattered was the poll on election day. Yeah. Um, and yes, um, the parties that had um, a ban or promised a ban on fracking only. Uh, secured one seat, so I think that's overwhelming, uh, overwhelming uh, decision about people's um, uh, support for continuing its long-standing onshore gas industry in the NT. Um, so yeah, it was uh, a sensible result, and I think I must say, uh, as we talked about this last time, I think the inquiry went a long way. Uh, to helping that, like mm. that sensible centre who just really felt like they wanted a bit more information and they really wanted someone just to have another look at this to make sure we, we get this right. Um, that work um, facilitated that sensible centre getting really on board and comfortable um, to keep going ahead with the industry, which is fantastic. Um, I did want to say one more thing, though, Le Leon and Pete, about that um, you know emissions claim. Um, so so put the the numbers uh, aside for one minute, and maybe if we just talk about it through the lens of um, emissions management. Um, any any credible operator is going to be participating in um, designing a pathway to carbon neutrality, right? They, they're going to be doing it. You're going to have to be on that journey and on that mm. path. Mm. Um, and Origin is. And we made a commitment um, to um, uh, aim at being uh, net zero uh, by 2050. And should Beetaloo be successful, 
and should we want to continue to achieve that aim, um, Beedaloo gets brought into the next mix here. Um, and so we will be um, designing um, what are some of the initiatives or technologies that we can deploy or execute that um, ensure that um, we are as close to uh, as get as close as we can to reducing those emissions as far as we can um, so yeah we're we're absolutely committed uh, to that journey and whilst the energy sector itself is you know will increasingly become uh, electrified and there'll be more and more renewables in the system gas is fundamental to accelerating that um, um, so we 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 still play a big role. We still play a role. We, we still will play a big role in the future. Um, and you know, you can't actually manufacture solar panels or wind turbines or um, batteries <laughs> without um, energy like gas and also the natural resources that are required to actually build those things to make them possible. So. We certainly don't think it's um, um, gas and nothing else. We think it's finding the right balance of hydrocarbons or natural gas, um, renewables and so on. There's, there, there's a balance there and we will achieve it and we want to be part of um, um, being in the discussions that take us on that journey, um, but in a very honest and transparent way. Well, Steph, thank you very much uh, for once again coming on the podcast and clearing <laughs> all of this up for us because without your help, we'd be sitting there reading this thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what is it, what's going on here and have we signed up to something that's going to be disastrous for the environment mm -hmm. when clearly mm. there's uh, that, that, that's just uh, complete nonsense. Mm. Yep. And it's actually... Um I think we've talked about this before too. The resource extractive industry is the biggest private employer of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the country. And yet these activists are actually trying to shut those industries down. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For the benefit like, of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so we all know that a, a job is one of the most powerful levers to uh, help lift people out of um, out of poverty and participate in the mainstream economy and if there's no industry anywhere inside of where you live it's pretty hard to get a job so um they're actually they're actually yeah potentially destroying a lot of uh opportunities for people rather than creating them mm. well thank you very much steph no worries guys lovely to see you you too, Steph. And as always, it's been fracking brilliant having you on. <laughs> Stephanie Stonia from Origin Energy on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.